2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts where we'll hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. In the early 1990s, the beloved Griffin Theatre was faltering and looking for a new artistic director. The job was offered to experienced theatre director Roz Horan. She's here with playwright Andrew Bavell. Together, they collaborated on one of Griffin's most successful productions. Roz, Andrew, welcome to our Stable's 50th anniversary podcast series. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Lovely to have you here. Roz, you had worked as a theatre director with all the major theatre companies when in 1992 you were invited onto the Griffin as artistic director. Was that a something of a poisoned chalice? <laughs> well, it was a... Mm, I don't know if I've used exactly those words, but it was something of an unexpected offer, one could say, in that I was offered to be the leader of a bankrupt company. <laughs> Did you know at the time it was well, bankrupt? pretty much in the second conversation, let's say, <laughs> with the board, that the company was bankrupt, that they had to get rid of the whole board that had led it into bankruptcy or, you know, overseen that. And the new board had been appointed. I think they'd managed to wipe out the debt, but they had no funding whatsoever. And I was told that it would be a very exciting challenge. And my first job was to raise, that they had money to pay me for six months. But my first job was to raise money, a fee for myself for the next six months. <laughs> so, uh, so how and, and where did you find the money and to pay yourself? Well, I don't think I did pay myself for for a while. No, in the first few years, because I, I was there for a duration of twelve or a bit over twelve years, and for the f- first year we were just doing co-op productions. You know, I, I knew it was going to take time and one had to build up the credibility of this new company so no one was paid I'd say probably for the first year or two and then I managed to get an Australia Council grant to fund one production you know we're sort of going from project funding and the next year maybe I got you know Australia Council and and bringing in now the New South Wales Ministry for two productions and maybe a year or two later I got an annual grant and then it took another few years to get uh, finally, it was probably about eight, after eight years to get triennial funding for the company. So in the first few years, so much of it was done on the smell of an oily rag and, and with so much um, goodwill and generosity on the part of the artists. But I was very keen that actors got paid as quickly as possible, which, you know, I think after about two years we were able to do that. Mm. And, Ros, was it your vision to make Griffin the home of new Australian writing? Yes, at that stage, but the previous, you know, the Griffin that had come before me, I think there'd sort of been two stages before me, had done a lot of Australian plays, mm. um, but they'd also done international plays. And I thought if I was to kind of build up a company, I really needed to define it. So I, I very much wanted to make it an Australian writer's theatre. Um, I think that was partly why I was appointed, because my own work. I had a bit of an unusual career as a director because, like even in my freelance work, I mostly did new Australian plays. I just found that was where my passion and interest was in just what the contemporary social and political issues of the day were. So inevitably, 
I would take the company in that direction. Did you meet any resistance at all? Not from the board, no. They were very excited by that. It was then a matter of kind of developing writers and, and well, you know, seeing what writers were out there. And I think I gave myself, <laughs> you know, I do jump in the deep end, and I gave myself a double challenge of saying that, you know, so it was... It was very new and exciting to have a woman at the helm of a company, albeit a very uh, still fragile, you know, growing company. And I was very aware of the lack of opportunities that there were with all the major companies for women and for new artists. You know, it was very hard for an actor first out of NIDA or, or a writer to get his first or second play on at any of the bigger companies. So as well as being an Australian writer of theatre, I said this is going to be a company of first chance, a first chance company. So Andrew is possibly the exception to that rule because Andrew had had work done elsewhere before we met. And so I understand you made a point of changing the creative team for almost every show. I did, <laughs> which made it, you know, <laughs> which uh, I, made it hard for myself because, you know, as a director, you love to kind of get your favourite designer and your favourite team and really develop with them. I mean, I probably took a couple of my favourites through to two, maybe three shows. But generally, I, you know, every year I would talk to the agents or I'd go and see the showcases and I'd say, who's exciting? You know, try and pinpoint who was exciting. For example, I gave Ralph Myers his, his first job as a designer at Griffin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what were you looking for to produce at the stables? I was looking for urgent voices, you know, writers that really had something to say. But I was also looking for writers that were saying it in an innovative way. I was very interested in experiments with form or with style, but not for their own sake. And again, that brings me to Andrew because that's partly what really drew me to Andrew as a writer. I was aware of him from Melbourne because mm-hmm. I'm from Melbourne myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was, I was looking for meaty work that really meant something in our contemporary context. And so down the track a bit, you came up with the idea for an evening of short plays. That's right. Yes. Well, this was a good idea when we had so little funding to be able to give a lot of playwrights an opportunity. So, And I also thought, you know, audiences with television and film had smaller attention spans and they might really like a season of short plays. So I think I did that in my first year, um, six short plays, and it was very successful. It gave a lot of actors opportunities and six different playwrights. And again, I think your play, uh, like like Whiskey on the Breath of a Drunk That You Love, was in my first season of that. Mm -hmm. And then I I repeated those uh, short play season uh, certainly another time, maybe even three times during the course of my 12 years. Mm-hmm. And so around this time you met Andrew for the first time, is that right? And Andrew had contributed two short plays and mm. you suggested he write a third so that there was a trilogy of short plays. Yes. Is that right? Well, the first one, I don't know if you remember it, but the first one was like whiskey on the breath of a drunk that you love, which I, which delighted me, you know, because it was overlapping narratives and it was um, overlapping dialogue and playing with single with with, with a kind of um, a, the dilemma of emotional need and wanting more in a relationship and betrayal and deceit and guilt but in two different couples and 
you know, the markers of where the narrative arcs went were happening at different times and in different ways with each of the couples. But it was a highly stylized piece, and I thought I thought it was very sophisticated and sharp and witty. So that was the first one. And two years later, I think, in the second season, in 94, I think it was, Andrew submitted Distant Lights from Dark Places, which was completely different, but also very compelling, I thought. It was four different narratives intertwined, but they weren't overlapping. They were four seemingly four quite separate stories. But what they had in common was sort of, again, people reaching out in a need that wasn't being answered. It was full of mystery and intrigue. You know, I loved working on that. And so Mm -hmm. (laughs) after that, I I do remember, this is my memory, yours Mm -hmm. might be different, Andrew, but I do remember approaching you, you know, sometime after and saying, look, these are two fabulous plays and might you be interested in writing a third Mm -hmm. and creating a trilogy and do you remember what you said or where we went from there? What did you say, Andrew? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, w- I was interested in, in doing that third piece, but I proposed to Roz that rather than do a separate third piece, I find a way to create a bridge between the two earlier pieces, uh, which w- was quite a leap, really, because as Roz said, they were very different worlds and very different moods. Mm, um, but they true. shared some stylistic similarities and concerns. And I just had this sense that there was a really interesting way to create a world in which both these these stories could sit and exist and create kind of a very different and unusual kind of play. Mm-hmm. And I just remember Rods from the beginning going, yes, try it. I'm, I'm kind of with you. Uh, and and she allowed me to do that, and that was the, mm. the genesis of speaking in tongues. Mm. I thought and it was even a more exciting mm. idea, and and we we were quite involved together with the with drafts going back and forth. Yeah. So and you collaborated on the work together. Yeah, I would have shown Roz uh, every draft along the way, and I can't remember how many were written. But if it's like anything else I've written, there would have been a lot. Mm-hmm. And Ros would have been giving me quite extensive notes and feedback, dramaturgical kind of support during that process. And it was, you know, it was a it was a difficult thing to crack. So Ros had to kind of have a lot of confidence that I could get where I was trying to get to because it was a difficult work to articulate. Mm-hmm. I understand you both spent a great deal of time in Ros's kitchen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in in those days. Travel was harder. Yeah, um, we it, we didn't move around so much. No. It was expensive. So I don't. But yes, I used to come up. Yeah, we used to sit and talk in Rosa's kitchen. I also remember that later with Ship of Fools as well. I yes. think. But yeah. Yes. Hmm. And so the work was called Speaking in Tongues. The audience response was very strong. Why do you think that was? I don't think people had seen a play like that before because of the way it was written uh, uh, arising out of two earlier works it was a very unusually shaped play it broke a lot of rules uh it it discarded the four characters um that we came to know in the first half at interval and and introduced a whole set of new characters um, in and the then, second and half, and then Leon came back. Didn't uh, yes, he? and Leon kind and of it, came back to yes, sort of one of the earlier the ones. Yeah. Yes. 
So I think there was a my sense was that there was a lot of excitement about it formally. Mm. Like um, you know, we were coming out of a time in Australian writing when naturalism was the dominant genre. Mm. Uh, Aussie realism mm. was what we were doing mostly and and this play you know it was one of the early plays that dealt with intercutting of narrative and monologue simultaneous use of dialogue and action mm. split scenes all those great things that are quite familiar to us in the theatre now that's right and it was quite challenging with with actors, you know, because yeah. it had to be as precise as a musical. It was a musical composition. Yeah. I mean, I heard it as, as music, you know, and you had to absolutely all come together on that moment and then that had to be a bass or that, you know, it's sort of yeah. really you had to have all the kind of tones and the voices. And I probably, because I was so excited by the for, formalistic things, I kind of took that into the choreography, into, do you remember that, Andrew? Mm, into mm. into the, So, so certainly for... One part of it, the part that was really originally like whiskey on the breath. I, you know, we we were also um, exploring the ac- actors using similar gestures mm. or a similar gesture that then became something else, and so it was really fun mm. to explore as a director, and I think fun for the actors, but a bit a, a bit terrifying. I, I remember them, uh, you know, there being moments of resistance, yeah. and th- that idea of asking an actor not to play there emotional impulse uh, mm. that emotional truth they did have to do that but they needed to measure that against the needs of the ensemble so mm. or, and it is as Ros says a, a musical composition so if somebody's slightly off note the whole piece starts to unravel very quickly mm. so you did have to contain your own impulses to go in one direction in order to go in a uniform direction and that probably went against some of the actors' instincts, I think. And and mm. whenever that play's been produced, that problem has arisen mm. and I've just really had to argue and convince the, the ensemble to to not fear the kind of uniformity of it because when they embrace that, when they make that work, the piece really sings. Mm. And if they don't, mm. it's it, it doesn't work. There was often this fear that set in in week three, you know, which was the sort of week before you were coming to the final week because it's never been done and is what is this bloody well going to work or not and it's so unusual and strange and that's the most challenging part to kind of get them to stay with it and trust it and get over that hump. We toured the production but it was, it was a new cast that went mm. to Melbourne and Adelaide and there was no fear because they had known that it could work. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. always so scary for those in the premiere production. And then kind of euphoric when yeah. w- when the audience starts responding. You go, ah, there is something here. Yes, yeah. there's something that's bigger than the parts yeah. parts of the whole. Mm. Mm. And it's fair to say the play had quite an impact on the next generation of writers. How did you find that out? Well... You know, it was always a work that I was very proud of uh, for its formal experimentation uh, and its kind of capturing of atmosphere and and its use, you know, just its economy. It it used four actors in really interesting ways to tell quite complex stories and it was a portrait of a more sophisticated Australia than perhaps we'd been used to seeing. So, Mm. you know, I can, yeah, I'm proud of this work. Ros did a beautiful production and it had gone on to have a really interesting life overseas, in the UK and America. It was one of those Australian works that kind of crossed the ocean. And it had a wonderful life elsewhere in Australia as well. So, 
But really, it wasn't until Sam Strong revisited the play and brought it back to Griffin mm. in 2011. Um, and at, at that stage, I was uh, living and working in America, but I came back at the end of the season and all these people came to me and said, you don't understand how important this work has been for for my thinking. A lot of young writers and directors like Simon Stone said, this was a really influential work. Um, it really informed my own practice. And I had no idea of that, I guess, mm. that, that another... I mean, I was so grateful for Sam to bring it back to Griffin and to introduce the play to a new generation. But I hadn't understood that it had had an impact beyond its sort of season. Mm. Mm. If I could just add to that, because I, I think I think Andrew is really one of the best Australian writers we have. And um, what that play epitomised, which is in all of his work, is there's, there's always emotional depth and a real excavating of the truth. So it had all of these formalistic elements which were exhilarating and, you know, wonderful to watch. Um, but you were really taken on emotional journeys by all of those characters. And I, I think that's why uh, there was any interest in it for a film, mm. you know, because don't, don't you think, Andrew, you know, it wasn't just sort of, you know, it just had the characters were terrific and there was a lot of emotional, big emotional worlds there. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, you'd invited a couple of well-known Australian filmmakers to opening night. Did you already have the notion that this play would make a great film? I'd been quietly... Th th these, I was haunted by these stories, particularly the story of the woman who never got home that mm. night, um, the character being Valerie Summers, and the, the story of the man whose shoes were found at the edge of the ocean and in distant lights and dark places, this kind of yearning uh, and searching for kind of meaning and connection. And, and the play was both a thriller and a kind of relationship drama. So I'd been sort of playing with cinematic ideas i mean i think the interesting thing about speaking in tongues is it's entirely theatrical in its form you can't do that in the cinema that's right it, it's a work <laughs> that belongs in the theater but beyond that i knew there was a rich story that could work in cinema and i'd been working with jan chapman the producer and ray lawrence the director on another project for some time and it had just fallen over and we were kind of heartbroken it was Tim Win Winton's The Riders, mm -hmm. and we basically we'd worked for three or four years on developing that screenplay, and for reasons that are peculiar to the film industry, it didn't happen. Uh, and they kind of said, what we need to do is a small Australian set story, you know. I said, I've got just the one. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it's about to open at Griffith. So I did invite them, and but I was worried because they're both very film people, not necessarily theatre people, though they love theatre. Um, and because Speaking in Tongues is so challenging formally, I thought they're not going to get it. But Ray Lawrence said, I love it. I love it. I, I just so engage with the stories. Jam was a little bit more sceptical and she needed to be because she's the producer and she's got to have the hard head on it. Mm. And she said, show me a treatment, write me a treatment. And I said, well, actually, I've just got one in my drawer. <laughs> I'll send it to you tomorrow. Just so I have one I yeah. prepared earlier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's how that happened. They were there on opening night and they were a part of that kind of... They saw the energy and the buzz and the response to it and that was, yeah. And so then did you write the screenplay for the movie? Which, of course, yeah. went on to become an Australian classic. Lantana, why mm. the change of name? Uh, there was a long, and long conversation about um, the religious connotation 
uh, mm. of the title speaking in tongues and when you you know you envisage taking a story to an international audience uh, an american audience perhaps if we were lucky that term has such a particular meaning for me the meaning of the title was always about people talking at cross purposes people speaking and not being heard people speaking in languages that we don't get which was a sort of take on how we conduct how men and women conduct themselves their emotional lives together um, so it made sense to me but they just thought it's not going to work and so we worked hard at really you know trying to find a new title that was going to work and we were up at Ray Lawrence's house in Kilcare and I was standing on the veranda I looked out down into a ravine and I said that's the kind of place that Valerie would be found you know down there and it was full of lantana and I said why don't we call it lantana and I think they were both a bit mm, why and I said well look at it, the vine you know look at it's it's entangled it looks beautiful but if you put your hand into it you're going to get cut to shreds um it's dark it's mysterious it's quintessentially australian even though it's not a native mm. um so it, you know it kind of created an image for me that spoke to both the structure and the content of the film mm-hmm. were you involved at this stage Roz, in taking the play from stage to film no i wasn't <laughs> i probably would have loved to but <laughs> it was a you know a whole different ball game fun coincidentally i have moved over to film myself in more recent years but it's a, it's a different journey mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's always a slightly all, yeah. s- sad journey when you kind of you know you've you've worked really closely on something you've created a work and then suddenly it has another life with a whole different set of people and you i always feel like ah oh, you're leaving people behind as as and that story particularly you know had a number of iterations uh, and a number of versions and each time i felt like i was ah oh, wasn't able to take kind of the original creators along with me. Mm. And such a big jump, I imagine, from the tiny little stage at the stables to, you know, the elaborate sets and that kind of thing that are involved in filmmaking. It's a very tricky space there, isn't it? Did you enjoy working there, Ross? I did. I, I enjoyed um, working with that space as a director. It, um, it, it forces you to be inventive. I think we did some fat, you know, wonderful sets there. We for speaking in tongues, it was very simple. I think we just did. We have a blind or something, or I'm, I'm, I might be getting mixed up. I'm not sure, but I don't remember having anything very much at all for speaking in tongues. But the, the other play we did, Ship of Fools, mm. we had. Other, I, that was a time I worked with one of my very favourite designers, yeah. which was Dan Potra. And that was a beautiful set. Yeah, it was a beautiful set, and I, I found that there was so many so many things you could do in that space but uh, you know when I finally left after 12 years I was very much wanting to explore other spaces Mm. it's the intimacy of the venue Mm. I think being that close to a work being that close to the actors Melbourne has La Mama and Sydney has Griffin and both of those um, and the Stables Theatre and and both those spaces are central to Australian storytelling in the theatre and it is something about the proximity the audience has to be a part of that drama and to be covered in the actor's spit and sweat. You know, it mm. makes a very the experience very particular. And so, why would you say it's important in the past and indeed the future of theatre in Australia? That theatre. Well, I think for all the reasons Andrews just iterated. You know, it, it's a sympathetic space. I mean, it does 
the audience do engage. You know, it, it's the it's so much easier to engage. Like if it's a theatre for new writing, all of that helps. You know, to be able to express it in in such an intimate space is wonderful, and it's a powerful space. And I I think we need smaller spaces like this in in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. the the economics of it work. We can take more risks mm. um, with, with a space of that size, but both with La Mama and. Griffin, the commitment to Australian storytelling has been vital and I was actually unaware that that Roz had that's how you'd marked out the company I thought it had always been that Well, it had, it had done a lot of Australian work but also overseas work, you know yeah. a, a mixture of things. But yeah. for, for theatre companies like Griffin to have stood up at that time and said we need an exclusively Australian house mm. um, and where and our writers are worth that and we have to develop them in this experimental space. I mean, every theatre culture has had that. And at that time, we Australian writers, Australian playwrights, were fighting still against that that kind of sense that the best stories were still written overseas. So if you look now at contemporary Australian playwriting, it is so strong and it is so diverse. But the roots of that lie back in the late 80s and the early 90s when people really committed to developing new Australian work. You know, there was a formative experience or seminal experience that I had through being involved in the Women in Theatre project that took place at Belvoir sometime in the mid-80s where the Australia Council, through Chris Westwood's um, lobbying and whatever, suddenly threw a few hundred thousand into the pot and said, put women's plays on and give women directors an opportunity and so on. And... You know, it was in Belvoir upstairs, not in the small theatre. I remember one of the first writers that was done had not done much before that and people had huge expectations. There was no period of script development or dramaturgy and it failed. It bombed with the critics and it destroyed, you know, a particular writer's career and confidence, absolutely. Mm. So I think another driving force I had when I was running Griffin was a belief in development, the sort of thing that Andrew's describing that we did, even though, you know, he had more experience than most of the writers I'd worked with. And so that often before I put something on stage, it was two or three years in development. And I think that has absolutely kept going. It's part of Lee's you know, most directors since. But if you're doing a new Australian play, you've got to give it every opportunity, you know. Mm, Absolutely. Ros Horan, Andrew Bovell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Angela. for listening to Griffin's special podcast series where we're celebrating 50 years of the stables. For more anniversary activities, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au.